ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages, welcome to another Fuds on Film podcast. I'm delighted to have you with us. My name is Scott Morris and I'm joined today by Drew Tavendale. Greetings. Now, we have cast a few side eyes at Netflix's own funded content of late, at least in the movie realm, uh, while their episodic content has perhaps fared a little better, critically speaking. Lord knows how many eyeballs any of their outputs actually attracting. They're seemingly much more likely to be giving us terrible science fiction films like Mute or Adam Sandler vehicles than a decent science fiction film like Upgrade or something like Okja. So it's a bit of a mixed bag, but still, it does seem churlish to complain recently, given it in the past few months. They've not only given us a Coen Brothers joint, but they've also released a new Orson Welles film, The Other Side of the Wind. Alongside this, they've put together a documentary on how that film came to be, named They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, a necessary venture as well is, checks notes, still dead, which is traditionally seen as a barrier to directing a film. So, let's uh, give a bit of a rundown on these before we get into it. Uh, The Other Side of the Wind is at once a complex and simple film. Uh, It has a film within a film conceit and a frantically cut nature that obscures a fairly slight story of a highly regarded but faded director, Jake Hannaford, played by John Huston, holding a birthday party full of his friends and enemies, some of whom may be the same person, which doubles as a first screening come fundraiser for finishing his current titular opus titular in both the literal sense and also because it seems to mainly consist of Oja Kodar wandering around with her baps out and is otherwise divorced from meaning. The party is a dizzying barrage of close-ups, angles and bon mots that sketch something of the character of Hannaford and his relationships with his friends, particularly Peter Bogdanovich's Brooks Author Lake, and also his art in a changing Hollywood system. The documentary, The Love Me When I'm Dead, goes some way to explaining quite why this has the visual stylings that it does, and also why it's something that was uncompleted in Wells' lifetime, as well as being a document of his later life and career. In my mind, at least there's little value in talking about them independently of each other, so let's dive in. Drew, I guess first First things first, right? Did you watch this in the same order I did and the way Netflix fed it to me, which was the documentary first and then the film? Or did you do it, what I would think is a better way of watching the film first and then the documentary? Well, two people whose names may or may not be Mr and Mrs Morris um, <laughs> suggested to me to watch them in the order of documentary first, film second. So I did just that, Scott. Right. <laughs> um, uh, having watched them the, again... Uh, Ooh, just for this recording, um, I think that might have been the wrong way round. <laughs> now, uh, from your statement there, I'm guessing you didn't think much of these films. That's not fair. I enjoyed them both. I just didn't think that. How to put this best? They may not have been worth the wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the other side of the wind was interesting. It held my attention, and again, from what you and your good lady wife had said to me. I was a bit apprehensive about it. I thought perhaps I wouldn't. Uh, mm. But no, it held my attention and it's interesting. Oh, uh, let's see. I liked half of The Other Side of the Wind. <laughs> I liked the pseudo-documentary bit. Yeah. The actual parody, piss take, perhaps just straight out sneering conceit of the yeah. Michelangelo Antonioni, um, Zabriskie Point style film within the film of The Other Side of the Wind. I didn't care for it at all. And I get yes. the feeling we're not supposed to because Wells is clearly just is raging everybody in this film and mm-hmm. that sort of our house isn't quite right because that's, that's such a broad term anyway but that sort of Antonioni, young Antonioni style film mm-hmm. um, he seems to be quite dismissive of so I'm not, I suspect I'm not supposed to like that film but at the same point it's still a fairly substantial part of the film. There's so like much it. of it. <laughs> I mean, um, if it's a parody or something, it just goes on for so long. Yeah, and 
You know what? I've not actually the the, the maths and see if it actually does go on for so long, or if it just feels like it is going on for so long. But it's it's a very substantial part of it. It feels almost entirely superfluous. Bar after the first five minutes or so, it's like okay, we get the point. You don't like this, but why, why do you have to subject it to? It? Is it, are you just trying to prove you could do it if you wanted to, and you choose not to? And so, um, and again, it's it's got to be that it's not that it's not meant to be liked, this film, but some of the stuff is just so... The image of it is just so... Well, juvenile, quite frankly. Certainly yes. not subtle. Like yeah. the, the huge phallic imagery, because there's a scene towards the end of the... Well, I think you'd, you sort of see them just in disjointed parts, because at one point they're showing the reels out of order as well, so who really knows what yeah. order's meant <laughs> to be in. There's a scene where Oya Kodar, who... Keeps being referred to as mini ha ha and pocahontas and other terms of Native American, despite <laughs> being a highly tanned Croatian. Yes, that was um, very strange. <laughs> but to us, in terms of our physiognomy, I mean, I've seen less appropriate casting, certainly. You know, it's not like <laughs> um, John Wayne playing Genghis Khan. But <laughs> she's Croatian, not Native American. But that's perhaps also a, an element of his time, too, according to the rather unpleasant homophobic slurs that are used in that term in certain mm-hmm. points too anyway there's a scene where she's naked oh, there's very few scenes where she's not to be honest and then she's out in the desert somewhere and there's this metal mesh sculpture which gets covered in a, a piece of wind blown fabric and then suddenly becomes quite clearly a giant penis which she then attacks with a pair of scissors and then it falls over, and it's it's so not subtle. The, the the overriding question for me with that scene is where was she keeping those scissors, <laughs> given how little clothes she's wearing and tends not to have a lot of pockets. So it's, I mean, it doesn't bear thinking about in a number of respects. Well, I assume I know because well, don't, I am a heterosexual man, so I see this. Wo- I, I'm paying attention to this woman. Okay, she's an attractive woman, and. You don't have a lot of choice. You see a lot of her, right? And you see a lot of her bottom in particular. It is a pleasant bottom, and it's quite well-toned. So I'm assuming she just clenched her buttocks really tight and held the scissors between them, because there's no other way to explain it. Well, that isn't incredibly dangerous or uncomfortable anyway, so I'm just going to go with that one. Actually, even before we talk about how much we liked or didn't like them, Scott, there's just one thing I want to get out of the way, and that's the potential for this film to reasonably be called Arrogant. Now, I don't think it is. Let me get that straight. But the idea of taking anybody's unfinished work, mm. and not just somebody who's as fated and lauded as Orson Welles was, you know, the the term genius is much overused, as many terms of uh, praise are, but I think in many ways you see with Welles it's probably appropriate. Mm-hmm. But even if he hadn't been that good um, the idea of taking someone else's work and finishing it certainly 40 years later yeah is could potentially be seen as arrogant not to the extent where it's always bothered me actually when you see you say ah you know some poet know, to pick a name at random i don't know if it's happened with him but wh Auden, we found unpublished works of his and things and like we're going to publish something like, yeah well that's just well you've got no right to do that because maybe there was a reason he didn't publish them yeah. It wasn't that he didn't get around to it before he died, or he or she. It's because 
didn't think they were good enough. And people have yeah. their own editing process. They don't want to publish everything. Yeah, or there's some other reason for doing it, like uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, the similarly and stuff, uh, when yeah. that was published. And it's clearly, it's, it's a whole bunch of background material. It seems to be like just like a little hobby for him, but it doesn't really read as any sort of work that you can do. Uh, actually, just sit and read through it. It's a bit of a slog. It's, yeah. I can see why it was not released as a, as a book and other instances of people taking on their family members' work and arguably making an absolute pig's ear of it, like uh, Brian Herbert's what he did to the Dune franchise after his father's death, which yeah. I don't think you could even call literature, um, and completely changed the tone of the first books. But all the time he's swearing that, no, no, this is exactly what my father intended, and it's blatantly obvious it isn't. Sorry, I'm still, I'm still very upset about that. <laughs> but yeah, there's all, all reasons for um, exactly, unfinished works yeah. to remain unfinished, yes. Yeah, uh, Tolkien and the Silmarillion was absolutely one that was in my mind earlier. Uh, I mentioned a poet because I, I know it's happened a a few, quite a few times, quite recently in recent years, where um, unfinished or unpublished works by poets have been put out, and it's like oh, yeah. the great lost work by, and like yeah, but again, as I said, maybe there's a reason they weren't published. Yeah. That's the author's right to do that. I, mean, I understand the desire for fans of these works and these authors to get more, but it doesn't really mean they should have them. I mean, it's not, yeah. So yes, there's a potential for arrogance here, and. I kind of I swither on whether a family member is the person that might actually have a right to do it or not. I mean, Christopher Tolkien, who did the Silmarillion, put that together, had worked really close with his father on a lot of stuff, so maybe he... Um, it's not... Again, it wasn't finished work, but yeah. I might find it easier to believe that he was, um, if not carrying out his wishes, that it would have been done with his blessing, although Tolkien was a bit of a, a curmudgeonly fella at times. <laughs> uh, and so this has... Uh, Orson Welles' daughter involved with it and Peter Bogdanovich who is in the film and worked with Wells and Wells stayed with him and stuff and yeah. if, from the documentary side of this he probably deserves to make something off the back of it <laughs> yes. uh, it's, it's a really interesting question of whether this is arrogance whether it's hubris or whether they're actually following their wishes in this case I'm thinking for the most part and Wells struggled with this film but I don't think he ever intended to not release it. Um, yeah. Although there is some... It comes up in the documentary also. There is some suggestions that some people believe that maybe that was Wellesley's final artistic flourish was to not finish and release this film. It was about how difficult it was to finish and release a film. <laughs> yeah. Not really buying that one, especially because, you know, Wells was still involved in the capitalist system all yes. of that wine wasn't <laughs> going to buy itself you know uh, the man was an artist but he also had heavy appetites and was not you know <laughs> known to necessarily have the best standards at times and just look at all those adverts he did in the late 70s and early 80s but yes i think that wells probably did intend to release this and finish this if he had been able to so from that point of view i don't think it's arrogant and again what the documentary side of this two points out is that and the actually the introduction to this film is a screen of text tells you this but it had been put together from it's like 100 hours of unedited footage there's a 40 minute assembly cut of Wells that Wells put together there's an annotated screenplay there's lots of notes and there's all of the recordings that were made during it so they had a lot to work from hmm. so it's not just the straight up arrogance of saying oh well we know what he wants but still you're always going to be conscious of skirting that line it's like yeah you're not that person yeah. 
And then there's a few people who are Orson Welles. Yes, it's <laughs> yes, quite. I mean, um, when I first watched it, I, it didn't really grab my attention, and I thought it was a bit of a mess. Uh, I mean, obviously it's purposely a mess, but it wasn't a mess in a way that was trying to really engage me all that much. I, I was constantly thrown by the way this. The way that it looks, you know, the most they can see is it's, it's stitched together from all these various sources. It's but, piecemeal, very much yes, piecemeal. But I would have been more willing to accept things like that. And the, you know, the, the way pretty much every dialogue shot, you know, it's always extreme close-ups. Um, there's there's very rarely a two shot or anything like that. There's, it, it feels like there are people talking in entirely different rooms. But when you watch the documentary, of course, you realise that is because they are in entirely <laughs> different rooms and possibly a decade apart. So, so it. I think somehow when I watched it the second time, I, I seem to be a bit more forgiving of that. But it, it did seem like uh, some of the choices that you might be con- you might want to consider as being some sort of artistic thing were just purely there because there was no other way to actually get the shots made to get it done to get it, yeah. get it filmed and that very, does kind of detract it a little from it a bit yeah i was very conscious of, i mean the editing job that has been done is remarkable um it's uh, bob Muraski mm-hmm. is the editor he won the oscar for editing the heart locker he i think there was a team of editors but he was doing most of the work yeah. and he's done a a fantastic job yeah bob Muraski mm-hmm. and so it does, it feels cohesive in it as much as, like, even while they may be 10 years apart in different countries with different stock, possibly wasn't even intended to be that same line of dialogue. It yeah. works as conversations at times. Mm-hmm. And so, and again, it also makes sense because part of the conceit is that it is a documentary pieced together from the different snippets of like there are thousands of, it feels like thousands of people recording yeah. every conversation <laughs> it's um, the most well recorded yeah. party in existence yeah which i'm going to have a slight tangent because the come back before i come back to my point but that is the bit i mean that's also there's a real it's not the angriest film i've seen but you can sense wells anger at hollywood through this mm. at his again this is portrayed in the john houston character but uh the, the difficulties of getting anything made when you're considered a legend and you're surrounded by all these um, cinephiles and cineasts and just general hangers-on as well. Yeah. And at the studio system and at like, his distaste, clear distaste for Zabriskie Point-style films. And so you've got all these cameras and the, so many recording devices and things around them too. And at the same time, it almost feels prescient because it feels like the smartphone age. In mm-hmm. that, if that was now, there would be probably more, but it would feel like just as many people recording and videoing every single thing that he was doing at that point. Yeah. And it would go on his nerves. Um, so it's kind of prescient without obviously any way of knowing that, but it's, it just kind of struck me that parallel between then and now. Yeah. Anyway, but what I was saying was, it's as we say, piecemeal. And you've got, it's like 35 millimeter stock, 60 millimeter stock. Um, I don't think it ever goes down as poor as 8mm, but there's, there's obviously real difference in um, film stock quality as well. There's black and white and there's colour. And it, it follows that conceit of it being like, stitched together, which, which has literally been done 40 years later, but that was always the concept for the film. And that has an effect in some ways. And but yeah, what I'm always really conscious of, though, is people putting too much into that because like, I wonder how much of that is design and how much is necessity. Yeah. Because there's very famously, there's a 
British film from the 1960s called If by Lindsay Anderson. Mm-hmm. And at the time, there's a moment where it's a it's not even halfway. I think it's about a third of the way. Oh, it's a long time since I've seen it. Where the film stops being in colour and becomes in black and white. And everybody praised at the time. I uh, was saying it was like this is bold artistic choice, and maybe that was it was a lucky happenstance. But Lindsay Anderson is quite famous for for being honest about it, saying, "Yeah, you know what? We ran out of money. We couldn't afford to colour film after that." <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> and, and I know art can thrive in constriction. But so I'm, all through this film, I was very wary of that. It's like, uh, how much of this is actual desired effect and how much is it because it didn't have a lot of choice? Yeah. Because it was shot over the course of almost a decade, different countries, different people. The fact that people don't look hugely different age-wise is remarkable. Yeah, uh, particularly when you think it's doing tricks like having... Because um, it was going to be Rich Little doing the character that Peter Bogdanovich is ultimately playing and they did almost completed photography and then... Wells, Rich had some other engagement and Wells decided, oh, well, I'm just going to cut him out entirely. And then half of that stuff was, well, all of that stuff was reshot with Bogdanovich years yeah. later. And it's in many ways it's miraculous that it hangs together at all. <laughs> so, But yeah, it, it does seem like a lot of the what it's presenting as art might actually just have to be the only way you could possibly put this together uh, just by chopping up quite so much. It's still interesting though. That's, I didn't find my attention wandering, which I, I said I'd been a bit worried about. So I, I'm sort of skipping about all over the place here, but the film skips about all over the place. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I'm kind of following the film in that regard. Just to come back to the documentary side of it first, you were asking whether I thought that was the best way to watch. Now, I've not watched them again. But I'm not sure actually, because I think that. Oh, you described They All Love Me When I'm Dead as being a documentary about how it was made. I would actually describe it as a documentary about how it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you may like a semantic argument, but stop. The fact that I watched that first, I think perhaps set me up for enjoying The Other Side of the Wind more, because I think if I'd just gone into that cold, it may have irritated me a bit more. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, obviously, there's no way to know. Uh, it's just a thought. But So that's quite interesting. And then... Because you can see what a mess it was, and that for them to have pulled something coherent out of that is mm-hmm. quite incredible. Yeah, what I would say is, like, I have absolutely no qualms about recommending a documentary at all to anyone. I thought that was a really well done uh, look. I mean, it's it, it's not hugely in depth or anything like that. It's not really. I don't think it's really uncovering anything that we didn't you couldn't have already found out from various interviews and not, but it does a really good job of stitching that all together and uh, just explaining what was happening with Wells and his, his later career and uh, I found that a really fascinating bit of documentary making and I would recommend that to anyone Yeah, The only issue that I particularly had with that film and beyond anything you've said Scott is that there were some really really odd camera angles in that documentary like scenes <laughs> where people talk and all your scenes their forehead Yeah, <laughs> What are you trying to suggest with this? I, I could not wrap my head around what it was they were trying to convey and like, <laughs> it's just, just kind of like wacky camera angle for the sake of it which I kind of came to the conclusion it was Yeah, well, why am I seeing this person's forehead oh, um, <laughs> that was my opinion yes, the, the documentary really interesting and if you have any interest in Wells at all I think they'd make a really good pairing these two I don't think you should see one without the other Yeah, it's seeing Orson Welles kind of acting like a person, <laughs> so certainly the I've not seen that much documentary footage of Orson Welles, but the suggestion that that documentary, The Love Me When I'm Dead, gives is that when he knows he's being filmed, he's quite reserved. Yeah, 
and they make a big thing of that wonderful moment towards the end, almost the last thing they show you, mm. of him sitting in a screening room um, being interviewed by someone and then just laughing. Yeah. And it's this wonderful, wonderful laugh. I, just, I wish I could have watched half an hour of just seen Wells laugh. I just find it's <laughs> such a, a rich thing. And so if you're interested in the man at all, it's, it's there and he's clearly, like most people are, he's a complex character. Very capable of being the complete asshat at times. Certainly. He doesn't seem to have been particularly pleasant house guest for Peter Bogdanovich. Yeah. <laughs> but he's an interesting guy and he doesn't it seems that his I mean I'm not it's not just because they both got absolutely corpulent in their later life but while watching I kept thinking about Marlon Brando <laughs> right yeah who considered genius in their field who both became truculent at times and uh, <laughs> corpulent and towards the end of their careers like their work was in question in many ways but unlike you know Marlon Vandal, who just seems to be the world's biggest asshat, <laughs> um, which we discovered particularly watching Hearts of Darkness uh, a little while ago, yeah. Scott. Yeah, he is—he's a pillock, um, and he, <laughs> uh, he just—it wasn't, oh, no, wasn't just Hearts of Darkness as well, but that was bad enough. It was then Lost Soul when they was working on the island, Lost Island of Doctor Moreau. Yeah, just, uh, the man was a pillock. Whereas Wells' struggles do seem to be more artistic rather than just being willfully unpleasant and difficult to work with. Doesn't excuse all of it, of course. But the, I think the documentary does a good job of showing you that that he's... I mean, okay, yeah, he has issues with Hollywood and then there's a point where he's like, he suddenly became a legend to Hollywood without ever having any power yeah. um, to wield that. Mm-hmm. And then his frustration with that and then his frustration was just like... the. I guess perfectionism, which is like the the real the thing that comes out, is never like the version that's in your head. And he seemed to be struggling with that in a lot of things. So it just it makes a really interesting portrait of the guy. Yes, yes, it certainly does. And it seemed that there's quite a bit of John Houston in there, who who is the the real standout of the other side of the wind. I think John Houston's fantastic. He doesn't even have all that much to say. Yes. But I just think he's amazing. He's captivating in a sense. I wish he'd acted more, actually. I mean, he's made, he was a great filmmaker, but I kind of wish he'd acted more because between that and Chinatown and things, he was fantastic. Yeah, he's hugely charismatic in this yeah. role. Um, I would. I have my doubts about a lot of the party scenes, uh, but I think Peter Bogdanovich also does very well. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, Houston, uh, and particularly when those two are sort of bounced off each other gives some really nice moments and I think that that really does work hugely well and is probably some of my favourite moments in that that whole setup. A lot of the other guests at the party are not that they're bad people and obviously have bad performances but they, they feel awfully wooden compared to those two. They feel like they're in a different film. They're basically acted off the screen uh, particularly the um, the critic uh, Susan Strasberg's character. Yeah, uh, yeah um, Pauline Kael in, yeah. effectively in real life. Yeah. Um, that Wells famously had issues with. Yeah, like she's hugely annoying. Um, again, prob- almost certainly intentionally, but just in terms of the character and the performance, none of it is it's just annoying to watch. And there's a lot of characters in there that are almost like, because they're so thinly veiled pastiches that they don't feel like characters at all and they don't seem like they belong in this film when you've got... You know, Houston's character is, is quite 
complexly drawn, or at least hinted at. Uh, there's a sketch there of something, uh, some really interesting outlines that are kind of forming together at some points. And then uh, that fellow who's playing Billy Boyle walks in, in the middle of it and just goes, oh, hello. Yeah, like, oh, I'm, good grief. This is, that's this exactly what I'm I'm glad it wasn't just me. Uh, Norman Foster, I thought he was mm. appalling. Dreadful. Uh, truly Dreadful. awful acting. Um, Susan Strasberg didn't bother me all that much. Um, although, again, on a, an acting level, she doesn't compare to Bogdanovich or Houston. Mm. She's got, but yeah, Norman Foster, Billy, but he was just, he's awful. Yeah. And um, as much as I was enjoying, again, the film within a film is obviously terrible. Even mm. if it's meant to be, there's too much of it. Yes. The actual party scene, I still found engaging it and it just lights up when Houston's on screen and Bogdanovich as well but mm. I kept getting taken out of it by him because he's so bad yeah um, and I, I don't get it I don't know why that character's really there other than to give an, a sort of really botched explanation of the film to a studio guy but that doesn't seem like a valid reason of that character in it and um, yeah there's, there's a few other people in it that um, are of questionable uh, value. Um, Cameron Mitchell's in this film. Cameron Scott. Mitchell's really good in this film, though. Yeah, I'm yeah, just, I'm just him. used to him being bad because of everything I've seen from Best of the Worst. <laughs> exactly. Media. That's where I largely know Cameron Mitchell from. So when I saw him in the documentary, when I watched that, so that's Cameron Mitchell. Yeah. <laughs> like, yes. And I can actually, no, he is actually good in this. I wish he'd had a bigger role. Yes. Because um, <laughs> this, this poor guy who seems to, because they hint at being repeatedly screwed over by. Yeah, Hannaford, and I would love to have seen more of that because he yeah. always seems resigned to it. But there's a <laughs> you can certainly play with a real bitterness, but also need with that character. Um, yeah, and yeah, so you you would not expect that Cameron Mitchell, <laughs> um, terrible B movie legend, um, in the Norson Wells film, and is good. <laughs> well, that's what a good director does for you, I guess. But I don't know how that explains Norman Foster, though. No. <laughs> I mean, that could have been Norman Foster, the architect, and I suspect he'd done a better job acting. <laughs> and built you a nice house at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Um, as a film, Other Side of the Wind, I, I, I don't know. I mean, when you hear Wells talking about it himself, about it being his uh, his greatest film, I mean, obviously, I, I surely he can't have believed that even at the time. I mean, it's a, it's a very interesting experiment. I can see why you might have thought this was your, going to be your greatest idea, but I'm, I'm sure he can't possibly have been thinking the same thing when he'd actually finished uh, or recorded as much of it as he was going to. I don't think how any, anyone could watch this and not see it just as an attempt by him to settle scores or in some way just deal with his own experiences, but that doesn't make it his best film by any sort of stretch of the imagination. No, not even close. I mean, the obvious candidate for his best film is Citizen Kane. Um, it's certainly his most influential. Yes. I'm not really sure what else you'd feel. There may be Touch of Evil or the non-butchered ending version of Magnificent Ambersons. Hmm. You know, had Els- Wells actually been allowed to make it as he'd wanted to but this, yeah, it's too incoherent, too much of a mess to be even considered close to his best film, surely. Interesting, certainly. Mm-hmm. And perhaps, in many ways, his most personal, but best, oh, absolutely not. Yes, perhaps from the perspective of Orson Welles, it is his best <laughs> film. But I think for more general audiences, mm, mm, no. The thing about it is, I, th- I think it's 
it is worth watching purely because I think the documentary is uh, I found so interesting. If you've any interest at all in filmmaking or Wells at all, then it's yes. uh, it's, it's an absolutely easy recommendation when you absolutely soon. And if you've seen the documentary, you can't then not watch the other side of the wind. Really, the reverse, and a rewarding, satisfying permanent. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, just, Scott. You were talking to people in it, though. I actually think Oya Kodar kind of comes gets a bit short shrift from it because she gets she's just called the actress and she doesn't really get to to do much. Um, no, she and Wells were together for a long time. She was um, his later life paramour, and 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 you know she's just required to look pretty, which she does extremely yeah. well. But you know, it's for as much as she's in the film, she gets soddled to do really. I kind of feel a bit. Sad for her, it seems like Wales ought to have given her a meteor role, but maybe she wasn't capable of it. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I sort of just to another yet another aside, but yeah, you're right. I think you can't really see one without the other. They they work together really well. I think each is lesser without the other. Yes, and yeah. certainly very interesting. And just, can I just call out the reviewer? I think on Variety. It's either Variety or Rolling Stone, but I think Variety. Who described The Other Side of the Wind as being like a found footage film. Um, at which point my brain almost shut down because that made no sense to me at all. But um, this, yeah. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with my views on this, but there's just, there was a mind men mind-bendingly stupid thing to say I'm like, that, that, no <laughs> found footage and documentary are not the same thing yeah did, did, did he think everyone at the party died and not just, is, is that is this a radical reinterpretation of it <laughs> they were all murdered by the dwarfs that are there for some <laughs> for reason some reason yeah uh, and then they just uh, the, the the police find all the footage put it in a um, a locker in evidence for 40 years and then after which case the point becomes found footage it's not and Peter Bogdanovich comes back from the dead to edit the film and then puts it back out there yeah <laughs> so I know I, I've totally thrown you there I know but it's, <laughs> it's been stuck in my head since I read that and it's <laughs> it's just boggling my mind so I thought if I spoke about it it might just shake it free finally I stopped thinking about it <laughs> um, no but I think that's pretty much all of them got to say about it um I, I don't think in a vacuum i could recommend watching other side of the wind it's personally I, d- I just couldn't get into it um for an awful lot of the time um and i think it could do with actually being shorter i think it could do with excising most of that um film within a film conceit it's just not the most interesting part of it by a long chalk uh there's like one or two plot beats in it that's sort of important for the rest of it but even then not much it's really more of a character spin on uh, Houston's character but uh, even so I think there's there's certainly something in there to watch and I mean if you're any kind of fan of Orson Welles of course you're going to watch this it's a new Orson Welles film what, what else would you do uh, so a bit conflicted about that but yeah I can certainly unabashedly recommend the documentary yeah um, I mean well first of all I, I would like to um Unbesmirch Rolling Stone or Variety. Um, <laughs> thoroughly, thoroughly besmirch Peter Bradshaw of The Guardian, because it's Peter Bradshaw of The Guardian that made that silly comment about it being found footage style. Boom, you are notice, boy. You've been smirched. <laughs> um, so that's that's point of order number one. Point of order number two is, yes, I agree with all you say about why you should watch that. It is absolutely one of those films that's going to reward analysis. Yes. There's a lot of films that people will say things about and I'll immediately just call bullshit on that because well 
you can make anything mean anything if you really want it to. Uh, and a lot of the time, I think a film simply doesn't either doesn't deserve it or simply doesn't support such analyses. Yeah. This absolutely does. So I mean, this by the oh, yeah. windows, yeah. not them. They'll love me when I'm dead because there is there is so much in there too. The and, and you can read it in many ways too, and you never know. But there's so much. Just to take an example, because it's, it's a fairly significant one towards the end too, that Hannaford's suppressed homosexuality. Mm-hmm. Because there's so much of Wells in that, you, you could say, "Well, is that what Wells is saying about himself?" And me, and I think most readers of the film don't think that. It's more just that that's a analogy for not being true to yourself and that causing you problems and things like that. But there's loads of ways you could. But this is absolute film that's going to reward that sort of in-depth critiquing and analysis of it. So mm-hmm. if that's your bag, it's absolutely a fantastic film to look at, particularly if you're aware of again, Wellesley's career and just in general the changes that were happening in 1970s US cinema with the studio systems coming to an end, the new wave of American filmmakers coming in and then the corporations buying up the studios too. It's all happening on that time frame, so there's, a, there's mm-hmm. a lot of stuff to really get your teeth into. So if if that's your thing, then there's a lot to reward you here. Yes, and I'm going to suggest. I'm going to imagine that if you're listening to a film review podcast, then that's probably the sort of thing you're likely to be getting into. So yes, it's certainly got that going for it. Yeah, I think I'm spent. On this. You got anything else you want to? No, I, I think I've spoken far too much indeed. I probably repeated myself three or four times, as I always do, and always strive not to, but fail every time. So no, I, I am also spent. <laughs> So thanks very much for your attention. We'll be back with you soon, no doubt. But until that time, uh, if you want to get in touch with us, please do. You can do so on the Twitters. That's at FudsOnFilm. You can get in touch with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash FudsOnFilm or even you could try a podcast at FudsOnFilm.com. Like, review, share, smash that like button uh, or whatever you do these days to uh, approve of things. I will add to that. We will not request a five-star review because that pisses all three of us off I know I speak correctly for Craig there Um, leave a four star review (laughs) we would be if you would like to let us know what you think um, on iTunes or wherever else you should get your podcast we'd appreciate a wee review if you have the time and inclination and give us an honest opinion please we're not going to say if you're not giving us five star review don't do it or because well that sort of behaviour just won't stand smash the like button (laughs) smash it Smash it! Smash it so it doesn't work anymore. Yes, <laughs> let's do that. But uh, yeah, we don't. Uh, I mean, it's a good long time since so we've asked for any reviews or anything. We don't normally do it, uh, but why not stick one in here? If you've got the time, give us a wee review on iTunes just so more new people can find us. That's what we'd like. We don't want to know we're not talking into the void. And that'd be lovely. And however, rate us however you think is appropriate. Thank you very much. Appreciate your <laughs> honesty. So until we meet again, good night, and we'll see you next time. Hasta luego. Smash the like button! <laughs> Smash it! Smash it! Smash it. Smash it.